Margaret Fuller's ideas provided the underpinning of the suffrage movement. She was really kind of set the stage for how we ought to think about gender and women's rights. And in a certain way, because she died young at age 40 in 1850, Margaret Fuller was a bit forgotten, her intellectual insights forgotten. So those who acquired the vote, they became the history. That's how Margaret Fuller has been left out a little bit, but it's completely unfair. Here's a woman who, in a sense, lived with this tension between culture and politics, and also a woman whose identity was so much bound up with her as an intellectual, as a thinker. That's what distinguished her. That's why she wasn't like other women and other men. She was interested, of course, in the women's, the woman question, the big question of the era, advocating for women's right to a vocation, right to an education, um, interested in trying to get women to work cooperatively to help one another. Somebody with great political urgency, a sense of engagement with the world, um, engagement with what the United States could be, a sense of honesty about its shortcomings and also its potential. Welcome to The Literary Hangover. I'm your host, Matt Leck. With me, Alex Guns. Hello. And Grace Jackson. Hi. Uh, and today we are talking about <laughs> Margaret Fuller, who, uh, who's the best person we've covered, I think, so far. What do you guys think? Uh, <laughs> let's see. The best person we've covered so far. So in my power rankings. And are we including Orwell oh, in that? She, that's the thing. Is Oof, Hold on. I want to make sure. That's tough. Fuller versus Orwell. That's a hard bracket. Yeah. So among the American authors, mm. uh, I think uh, above Cooper, above Irving, above. Oh, she pisses Poe. all over Hawthorne. Oh, yeah. She does. <laughs> For sure. And his wife. And his wife. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Longfellow. Mm-hmm. Um, Easy. Yeah, that was like a that was like a exploration of mediocrity. Uh, <laughs> Longfellow. Yeah, yeah. The uh, so this is and she Margaret Fuller was not. Uh, she said Longfellow was a master at sort of mimicry. Oh yeah, she was quite kind of dismissive of him. She wasn't as bad as uh, Poe when it comes to the poison penness, but she would uh, she would go after people. And mm-hmm. didn't Poe kind of like her? He rated her. Um, well, we'll get to Poe. Um, Poe, well, actually, we'll get to him right now. Basically, what Poe said was, no other woman on earth could write woman in the 19th century, which is a bit <laughs> of a, yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah. okay, thing that seems like it's saying something nice about Fuller, but really he's down yeah. saying women can't write, basically. Oh, God, that's awkward. <laughs> like, she's the exception. And actually, Fuller herself sort of uh, occasionally throughout life would... Um, feel that way herself uh, a little bit. Um, actually, we'll get to him later, but in the conversations, she's sometimes upset that p- the uh, participants can't transcend to higher sort of types of conversation um, mm. that like, like she can. Yeah. Well, there was that constant refrain throughout her life that people would think that she was so great, partly because she like thinks and speaks like a man in scare quotations you know yeah well let's get to uh her uh, timeline a little bit uh well in 1638 her patriarchal ancestor arrives in cambridge massachusetts that's thomas fuller sarah margaret fuller our uh, protagonist today was born in 1810 in cambridgeport massachusetts to timothy fuller timothy was a, a uh, well for margaret fuller's life was a politician uh, first in the Massachusetts Senate, then in the House of Representatives. 
Uh, he was hoping to get an ambassadorship gig after that, and it didn't work out. Tough stuff. And then he became a sort of farmer, and then that's where he died. And a gentleman farmer. A gentleman farmer, yeah, who was maybe... Term. Yeah, and he <laughs> might have underestimated the type of labor that uh, farming requires. Yeah, pretty much installed his children to do most of the work, right? He couldn't hire any kind of, like, laborer. Right. And after he died, I think Margaret, like, inherited the cow, the one cow that was left from the farm, and she gave it to Brook Farm. Is that where is that cow came from? Fact, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, where has that damn cow even come so, from? So, uh, Brook Farm, it was a utopian community uh, that Fuller was, so, she would occasionally visit and lecture at. But she was never really a part of, even though she was invited to be a part of. And yeah, she gave them a cow, and uh, which Nathaniel Hawthorne called uh, to a letter in a letter to his wife, the transcendental heifer. <laughs> that's uh, fractious and apt to kick over the milk pail, uh, and that is hardly the worst thing that Nathaniel Hawthorne said about <laughs> Margaret Fuller. But we should also maybe save that. I got some timeline stuff here. 1813. That's when uh, Father Timothy joined the Massachusetts Senate. 1814, at the age of four, is when uh, Sarah Margaret Fuller's education begins. Her father uh, wants to give her an education that a boy would receive in preparation for going to Harvard. Mm. Um, What did you guys think about the educational stuff of uh, Fuller? There was a certain amount of kind of vicariousness in Timothy Fuller's approach to his daughter's education. And what struck me was from reading her biography was that uh, after he died, like eventually she remembered him as somebody who had never been quite fulfilled himself. Like he had always had his ambitions thwarted in some way, whether in Mm. the Senate or like afterwards when he became a farmer and he kind of was pretty ill prepared for that. So the way I read that was, you know, that during her early life when he was educating her and, just being completely merciless when it came to drilling her like there was this anecdote about how he insisted that she would stay up late enough so that when he got back from from work he could drill her on latin and greek and stuff yeah Um, the the uh the latin and greek uh and especially like the sort of the classical education she gets she's that and not christian right like that's her Mm -hmm. cultural background yeah Yeah. Uh, she says towards the end of life that there are very few times she even made a pretense of uh of appearing uh as a christian matt i think there was also something to be said about the fact that it was only when he realized that he had a very talented child on his hands that he did invest those resources in educating her to that extent and i think she was by far and away the most brilliant of like all the children of the Fuller household. And he recognized that in her. Um, And it's interesting, her relationship with her father. Apparently he never, he was very cold with her. So basically she goes, uh, she goes to different sort of prep schools in her teens. Uh, And in 1835, when she's done, she's um, moves back in. This is after her father's out of politics and on the farm. Um, Her father dies, but not before he tells her that she doesn't have any faults. She might have some defects, but yep. she has no faults. And that's somehow very a big relief to her that he would say that. Yeah, that reminded me of my secondary school history teacher who never gave A's as a matter of principle. And I once got like a B plus and I felt so goddamn accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> 
and it's during her teenage years she's lived in Groton for a little bit, and this is her mid to early teens. But she has a sort of a kind of or, an Orwellian interest in the downtrodden. And at one point she pays a visit to a woman who apparently is uh, in agony from tuberculosis, only to find out that actually uh, she attempted an abortion and later she died from that. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that was one of the early sort of run-ins with somebody wh- that affected uh, Fuller's politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see that play out throughout her life when she really takes up the cause of like sex workers and women who are working in factories in Manchester when she visits England. Mm-hmm. Like it's, I think that's very formative, that experience. Yeah, it reminds me uh, uh, actually of Orwell in the sort of down and out in Paris and London and Road to Wigan Pier uh, sort of mode. Mm. Um, and the of, journalistic impulse as well. But a very activist journalistic yeah. impulse too. Yeah, she's quick to frame childbearing and under marriage as like a form of slavery uh like relating it directly to the slavery that's happening in america at the time Mm. it was her father who gave her a copy of vindication of the rights of women yeah ambivalently right yeah Yeah. agonize over whether to do that yeah Yeah. it's a weird sort of push pull uh yeah he felt weird about that even though he was also a bit of an enthusiast for it sharing with the women in his life it's kind of the paradox of him as a person he's like both domineering but also liberating domineering in his ability to like force her to learn beyond the scope of the world that she lives in and I think there was also a suggestion that he was uh, maybe a little bit inclined towards flirtation or more with younger women, like when he was away in Washington on oh, yeah. his duties. Um, yeah. He wasn't totally faithful. It's weird that a politician would do something like that. Yeah. It's um. true. <laughs> that must have been uh, the one and only time that's happened. Yeah, exactly. But interestingly, his wife... Uh, Margaret Fuller's mother did push back against that and that was in the Marshall biography that Mm. I read that was kind of interesting she especially in her later years would kind of give as good as she got with him oh interesting when it came to that yeah so yeah after her father dies she goes to uh Concord Joins the Transcendentalists a little bit. Lives with Emerson. Has a sort of weird relationship with Emerson. Oh, so weird. She has weird relationships with both Emerson and Hawthorne. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to name just two. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. And then uh, she also meets Bronson Alcott, who is is very interesting. Turns fellow. out he's quite the weirdo. Quite a strange guy. So he <laughs> he gets in trouble for having the school that Margaret herself uh, teaches at for uh, briefly, um, trying to make ends meet. Um, where it's basically just talking to kids about the... The birds and the bees. Well, and uh, about the divinity of Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is not like... that's That upset some people, turns out. Yeah. Um, and he became a very uh, controversial figure. And would later... Uh, like these, these Once we get to the 1840s, um, he, I think he's uh, one of these utopian figures. But so she, uh, but the one thing that she did get, uh, and we'll bring in the first reference here, from uh, one thing she got from Bronson Alcott, which is after that school fell apart, Bronson Alcott started, uh, he became a conversationalist professionally. And this is a model that uh, Fuller uh, takes up to basically put the first big thing on her resume. Um, Like up until then, her intellectual interest was in Goethe. 
um, he, she wanted to be his biographer, but she had a tough time doing that from America. Um, and when her father died, it meant her ambitions to go to Europe to follow up that, that study fell through. So, uh, And I think another important piece of context is just to note that she always needed to make money. Like she was, yes. she's not a trust fund kid. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. She, the conversations were kind of born out of a need for her to monetize some of her talents. Um, and when her father died, she was made the de facto head of the household, and so she had to find ways to make money. Yeah, like a lot of the writers, like uh, Irving uh, Cooper, uh, Hawthorne, um, she was upper middle class, upper middle. but on the downward s- slope. Yeah. Of yeah. It. Yeah. Uh, unlike Poe, who was her, his parents were just uh, were uh, were actors, so he was not from any sort of wealth. But uh, but it does seem to be an impulse, and we talked about this with, uh, and we'll talk about this more with James Fenimore Cooper as we move back into his work. Is there's an impulse among these educated ki- children of families that are on the downward slide? Wild also Oscar mm-hmm. Wilde, go to try to make in culture what they can no longer make with property. Right, you can no longer form the world with uh, mm. with your property, so you form it through using culture. I think Goethe is a great is like the first example in her life of someone that she like devours as much as she can and becomes obsessed. Mm-hmm. Even think her own words as she loses herself, like in his spirit, and then transcends it. And I think that that's going to be something that she continues to do throughout her life, which is like absolutely fixate and obsess on like a series of ideas or, or a person until she's emptied the vessel. Mm. Yeah. And is it, I, I can't remember, but wasn't there someone with Goethe about uh, a mistress or he was keeping a woman secretly or there's some sort of scandal that helped her like sort of scandalized oh. her off of him. Oh, but I'm, yeah. I, I could well, put a pin in that, maybe come back to it. Um, she certainly outgrew the transcendentalists, and that's yeah. kind of a fascinating trajectory. <laughs> well, that's the best thing about her. Is, I don't know <laughs> if I've already said this in this episode yet, but I, I, I prepared to say it, so even if I've already said it. She transcended the transcendentalists. Oh, shit. She did. That's what she did. <laughs> um, but, uh, but before she transcended them, she got some good ideas of how to market herself as a con- conversationalist from them. Uh, so let's go to... Uh, this is from The Lives of Margaret Fuller. Uh, this is a a biography by John Matson. There's a great review of that in The Nation, by the way, by, by um, Vivian Gornick. Of the Matson one? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I need to check that yeah, out. Yeah, that's great. Fortunately, at the same time that she was bruising herself against the barriers she encountered in love and friendship, Fuller was preparing herself for greater success in a direction where all the walls had always been easier to climb. She was finding new ways to use her intellect and erudition to inform and inspire others. Some of her own inspiration in this line came from Bronson Alcott, who, since his Temple School debacle, had been giving public conversations as a way to eke out a living. In March 1839, Alcott had described his work to his aged mother. I am living rather by talking now than by school and shall be able, by and by, I think, to live this way entirely. I meet circles of thirty, forty, or more persons for ten or twelve evenings, and hold conversation on great subjects with them. Only think of your bashful, silent boy getting bold all at once, and going about to talk and make talk. Actually, Alcott had not gotten bold all at once. 
He had been giving conversations in Boston since 1835. In August 1839, Fuller decided to follow Alcott's model. On the 26th, she met with Alcott to discuss her plan. The next day, Fuller announced to Sophia Ripley that she had decided to become a conversationalist. The genre of the conversation differed importantly from the lecture. First, it involved less detailed preparation. The converser announced the topic of conversation in advance, but used no notes. The artistry of the event depended at least on the appearance of spontaneity. Second, the atmosphere was meant to be more intimate than a public oration. A good-sized parlor supplied a better venue than a formal hall. Moreover, though Alcott often felt forced to dominate his discussions more than he would have liked, the ideal conversation was, as the name indicates, participatory. The leader's goal was not only to inform, but also to inspire listeners to offer their own reflections on the topic. Finally, the conversation was conceived as a vehicle for social and spiritual reform. Alcott regarded his work as a ministry of talking, calculated to bring participants into sympathetic communion around a shared idea. Fuller's ambitions in conducting her own series of conversations were generally similar, but vitally different in their specifics. Alcott's conversations were open to both men and women. Fuller, to the contrary, chose from the outset to speak only to an assembly of women. In a letter to Sophia Ripley, Fuller offered the incomplete outlines of a manifesto. Her hope, she said, was to supply a point of union to well-educated and thinking women in a city which, with great pretensions to mental refinement, boasts at present nothing of the kind, and where I have heard many of a mature age wish for some such means of stimulus and cheer. She was eager to provide a place where they could state their doubts and difficulties with hope of gaining aid from the experience or aspirations of others. It is noteworthy that, in this informal prospectus, Fuller mentioned the need to create a nexus for shared emotional support long before she moved on to her intellectual aspirations for the venture. As she freely admitted, her choice of topics for discussion mattered less than the experience of each that might be brought to bear upon all. Yet, she desired much more than to establish a morally supportive sisterhood. At the center of her ambition lay three principles of action. To pass in review the departments of thought and knowledge and endeavor to place them in due relation to one another in our minds. To systematize thought and give a precision in which our sex are so deficient, chiefly, I think because they have so few inducements to test and classify what they receive. To ascertain what pursuits are best suited to us in our time and state of society, and how we may make best use of our means for building up the life of thought upon the life of action. Without the last of these three objectives, Fuller's plan would have held far less meaning for her. She wanted to lead her circle of well-read women to answer what she referred to as the great questions that few women took time to ask themselves until their best years had flown by. What were we born to do? How shall we do it? 
I have some more uh, details on these conversations. So uh, this was fall uh, 1839 when they started. 25 women were at the first meeting, a whole bunch of uh, big names, of, uh, especially uh, Horace Greeley's wife was there, uh, some the of the Peabody's. Peabody sisters, except Mary, uh, but it was at her, uh, first ones were in her parlor because she was away teaching. The Greeley connection is how she eventually ends up uh, working for the New York Tribune. Um, one of the ways. Um, the first meeting was at 11 a.m. on a Wednesday. Uh, it was in, on Wednesday mornings because Emerson was doing uh, talks in the Masonic Lodge uh, in the evenings on Wednesday. Uh, $10 for two meetings uh, for a week. That seems premium. Yeah. Elizabeth Cady Stanton called them uh, the vindication of the woman's right to think. Um, and basically this would lead into her uh, arguments in the Great Lawsuit and Woman in the 19th Century. I think it's interesting that she wanted it to be an exclusively like female event, partly because in Women in the 19th Century, her kind of ultimate, the kind of call to action at the end of the book is that women have to get together, they have to have solidarity with each other and help themselves and actually, what she's asking of men is simply to remove arbitrary obstacles. Mm-hmm. I think she uses that phrase, remove arbitrary barriers. And so the fact that like one of her earliest endeavors was to just create a, like a, a safe space, if you will, for female conversation. That's really what it sounds like, yeah. Is, I think, really relevant to everything else she did after that. Yeah, it's, it's really the, uh, can you just let me live of the 19th century? And also, I think there was a, an anecdote in the biography I read about how she had participated or had some co-ed conversations at one point, and she got really frustrated because all the men took over, like, talking about theo- um, theology. And, I think like, Emerson particularly was an asshole. Yeah. She, I think it was, yeah, she was invited to what would be a transcendentalist meeting while it was still... Was it the Coliseum Club or something? Some, yeah, it was when it was when the early days of transcendentalism, when it was largely like either pastors or ex-pastors, but they couldn't get mm. past like the the theology Doctrine. of like yeah, of like yeah. the Trinity or something. And she oh, was God. like pulling her hair out yeah. until she just like gave up. They always, even though they said they had like transcended these like dogmatic concepts, the conversation would always diverge into like how many angels can you put on the head of a pin and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so she has this weird relationship with the transcendentalist, particularly Emerson, who she lives with for a while, with him and his wife. Uh, and at one point, her wife says, I think you've been talking with Emerson. <laughs> uh, or Waldo, I guess she might have said. And Fuller's like, yeah, but you put it like that, it sounds so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, Apparently his study was uh, yeah. opposite the guest room on the first floor of his home. Yeah. And so Margaret would be like in the guest bedroom and Waldo would be in the study opposite until very late at night, you know, brooding over his books. Yeah, No it, sexual tension at all no. in that scenario. And it's funny because ultimately Fuller realizes that Emerson can't love anybody. And then Emerson writes to her after she reaches that realization, saying, hey, I think I'm in love with someone. And she's like this younger girl uh, that's part oh, of the transcendentalist. Oh, yeah. Sturgis. Yeah. That's oh, going to yeah. be like a common problem with Emerson with most of his relationships. Oh, Jesus. Is he like, 
because he's invited to uh, Brook Farm and he's like, like to you know better understand transcendentalism. He's like, I think I'm getting a much better job understanding it in my house. <laughs> like, even pushed uh, Thoreau away eventually. Well, yeah, we definitely need to do Emerson and Thoreau. But the thing yeah. with didn't I? And I'm I'm not two things that I need to follow up on with regards to Emerson, but that I think I know is one. Uh, his first wife died, and then he had such a problem uh, dealing with that that he later opened up the coffin like months afterwards to like look at her corpse. Uh, so God. let me know if that's wrong. Uh, no, that's true. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. and also but that was also a common thing to do. Y- y- huh. Lincoln did that to his son as well, which is like famously portrayed in Lincoln and the, the Bardo bottom. now. But that mm. did really mm. happen. Oh, interesting! I didn't know that. It's like a romantic notion to dig up your like loved ones Man. and see them, which never, never, never would stop I do that. that. Yeah, uh, and uh, then I think he sued the family somehow for some there's some property dispute mm. uh, uh, with his uh, dead wife's family, and that's where a lot of the money for his stuff in Concord came from. Oh yes. My God. Uh, but those are two things that I want to follow up on because this isn't an episode about Emerson. Yeah. But uh, uh, but anyway, so uh, but but they stay close enough to the point where they want to start a, a magazine for the transcendentalists, and that would be the Dial, uh, the Transcendentalist Magazine, eighteen forty to eighteen forty four. Fuller became the editor, unpaid, uh, in eighteen thirty nine. Uh, because Emerson and others didn't really want to take lead on it. Yeah. Uh, the um, term was coined by Bronson Alcott, too, wasn't it? The dial, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, to reference, like, a sundial. Um, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was to go after new ideas. Uh, didn't he call it, uh, what was it, like, a bold new Bible? F- it was like a bold Bible for a new America or something yeah, lofty so like that. We'll get into, uh, let's go back to uh, The Lives of Margaret Fuller by John Matson, uh, and uh, where he discovers or discusses the uh, founding of this uh, magazine here. Hedges qualms aside, the dial does not look to modern eyes like the brash experiment that it was in its time. Indeed, the magazine's prospectus, most likely written by Ripley, was intentionally mild-mannered. The magazine's purpose, the public was assured, was simply to furnish a medium for the freest expression of thought on the questions which interest earnest minds in every community. Disclaiming any fixed agenda, the dial promised to discuss principles, not promote causes, it vowed always to preserve an independent mind. In a letter to Channing, though, Fuller sounded like a more partisan note. Without mentioning the dial by name, she intimated that its constituents had a plain target, the complacent materialism of a money-minded society. She argued that the consistent prosperity enjoyed by Americans since the Revolution had left the nation's nobler faculties undeveloped. The industrial growth of the country had resulted in a commercial and political fever that had laid waste to the ethical and spiritual nature of its citizens. Education had become superficial, thought had turned vulgar. Americans cared more for getting a living than learning to live mentally and morally. In response, a small minority of New Englanders was now on the rise. Disgusted by the meretricious crudeness of commerce, they had become radicals. 
revolted by the materialistic premises of rational religion, they had become mystics. Insofar as these rebels demanded the instant creation of utopia, Fuller disavowed them. Nevertheless, she believed that every noble scheme, every poetic manifestation, prophecies to man his eventual destiny. Only an enlarged sense of the possible, she thought, could rally Americans out of their gluttonous torpor. It is on this ground, she concluded, that I sympathize with what is called the Transcendental Party, and that I feel their aim is to be the true one. Yet, as Fuller knew, even Transcendental Thought did not insulate her from the indignities of sexual politics. And uh, here's later in uh, The Lives of Margaret Fuller by Matson, where the uh, dial comes to a conclu conclusion. Um, basically, it was Emerson and Thoreau and... Uh, Fuller and all of them writing it. There's a bunch of Emerson and Thoreau in there chanting the transcendentalists. Uh, I think Fuller ended up being Thoreau's first publisher in in that sense because he was significantly younger. I think she she also notes that a third of the poets, at least in the dial, are from women, which is uh. which is far and away. Uh, much larger representation than any other literary journal. Yeah, it, could, even to this day. It took her yeah. a long time to kind of come out as a female editor there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> she would sign her pieces with SMF or yeah. F or... And the inaugural edition of The Dial said, uh, had a line like, we wish to meet thinking men. But the most essential reason was a matter of character. She simply could not devote less than a full measure of energy and passion to the work that mattered to her. Buoyed by assurances from Elizabeth Peabody that compensation was on the way, Wasn't. she stayed on through the winter, ill much of the time, and continually distracted by the wants of others whenever she seemed to be on the point of satisfying her own. When William Henry Channing pleaded with her to expend herself with less abandon, she rebuffed him curtly. If I economized, she wrote, I should be not. But neither economy of purse nor lavishness of effort could fend off the inevitable crisis. Finally, on St. Patrick's Day in 1842, the last reason to hold on gave way. Until a short time earlier, the moribund Weeks and Jordan had succeeded in withholding documents that contained a devastating secret. Upon reviewing them, Peabody learned the truth. The firm had grossly overstated the Dial's subscriptions, whereas Fuller and Emerson had blithely believed that they had attracted between five and six hundred subscribers. The true figure did not top three hundred. The journal's meager revenue sufficed to cover only operating expenses. There would be nothing left from which to pay Fuller's promised salary, now or ever. For Fuller, nearly thirty-two, it was a bitter discovery not only because it affected her personal fortunes, but also because it showed how far her country was from accepting the ideas that were life itself to her and her friends. First at the Temple School, and now at the Dial, the living waters of transcendentalism had proved to be, from an economic standpoint, a completely dry well. As soon as the news had sunk in, Fuller took up a sheet of paper and wrote to Emerson. She told him that she had at first hoped to ask only for a suspension of her duties at the dial. Now, 
It was impossible for her to continue on any basis. She had suffered a perceptible diminution of strength, and the winter's labor had been so severe that she did not expect to recover fully for two or three months. Indeed, since the onset of winter, she had been too worn out to write anything other than letters. Looking back, she felt she had never done what she might have for the magazine, though she could have if she had received her promised pay. She thus resigned her editorship. Fuller suggested Theodore Parker to replace her. However, Emerson chose to take up the reins himself, rather than have the journal pass into hands that know not Joseph. He thought he was a poor replacement for her, as he told her. Nobody is braver and faithful and self-sufficing but you. With deep embarrassment, he apologized for the bankrupt's return she had received on her investment of time, health, and labor. And he forlornly added, We are all your debtors, and must always be. Emerson was to remain editor until the journal finally expired in April 1844. However, when he wrote to Hedge the week after Margaret's resignation, he sounded as if the magazine were already dead. Poor Dial, he exclaimed. It has not pleased any mortal. No man cried, God save it. The depressed tone of Emerson's comments on the demise of the Dial makes it easy to assume that the magazine was a failure. A more thoughtful judgment is required. The Dial's four-year run was actually double the life expectancy of journals of the time, and thanks to Greeley's Tribune, it reached many more readers than the paltry subscription rolls reflected. The Dial's significance can best be measured by what was lost when it ceased to exist. For the transcendental movement, the death of the Dial meant both the loss of its public voice and the demise of the one forum that could accommodate its diversity and its passionate love of freedom. The eminent historian Henry Steele Comager called the magazine a place for religion without the church, for education without the university, for law without the state. Unable to agree on much of anything, the progressive writers of New England found in the Dial a place where Christian essays, pantheistic short fiction, and pagan poetry were equally welcome, and where difference was an occasion for celebration instead of rancor. The passing of the Dial was also a huge step backward for experimental writing in America. So yeah, the Dial, a uh, pretty cool little magazine that they had there. There was a funny moment in the uh, Marshall biography where after Emerson takes over the dial and Fuller writes to him being like, this magazine now is just you and all your friends writing to each other. Right, yeah, yeah. And at the time, Emerson was working on a edition of a dial whose theme, ship, or the, uh, whose theme was friendship. An essay on friendship, yeah. I think, came out in the last one. Yeah, just being seen so clearly. It's such a, it's so, it's so paradoxical, because I feel like there's still some significance to the, this magazine now, even though at the time, they're like, this is kind of, this kind of sucks. Mm -hmm. This is not what we want it to be. People don't come through with what they plan promise to before it gets started if it, it it would not exist if it weren't for fuller right and yeah. like and what she did uh in the first couple of years of it and it barely did even despite her <laughs> impoverishing herself to uh to try to keep it afloat basically and she and it should also be stated like being an editor is a certain type of skill 
that's not necessarily the one she was even most suited to, right? She's like a conversationalist. Getting and editing other people's works uh, is not really, that's not the same thing. And, yeah. But she still went after it. I think it's important to keep this in the perspective of the great awakening that's happening at this moment, that there are other people on the other side of like the political aisle that also sense this like ennui in the American scene and are looking to capitalize on it in their favor. And you can imagine a different world where transcendentalism or this kind of like more progressive form of, of uh, discourse would have been as successful as say like revival religion. Mm. Reading the dial is almost like looking into an alternate history into what America could have been if it caught on. Um, yeah. Like this entire decade, uh, basically the 1840s is the, uh, in uh, what hath God wrought that Oxford series. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who wrote that one. How, How? or someone. Yeah. How? Yeah. It talks about this as a time of utopian settlements, right? I think the Mormons are at this time. Mm-hmm. Fruitvale is another one tied to the Transcendentalists, which is like a vegetarian commune. Brook Farm, which we should move to now quickly. Uh, we talked about a little bit. Uh, Fuller provided the cow. It was a, uh, a commune based on foyerism and the associationism of Charles Foyer, the French guy who makes an appearance in uh, in... The House of Seven Gables, Uncle Venner. It was a bit foyerismistic, and uh, and so and uh, to remind people, Foyer is or Foyer. I don't know how I want to pronounce it, but uh, he's the guy who thought like we need to have these sixteen hundred person communes where everybody is able to to follow. Uh, and I think I might not. I actually think I might be underselling him a little bit. We'll get to. He was an influence on uh, on Fuller, um, so his his thinking was out there. Emerson also wrote an essay about him. So that, but anyway, back to Brook Farm. It was in West Roxbury, Massachusetts. Uh, Unitarian minister George Ripley announced it to the Transcendental Club in his plans in October 1840. There were 80 communal experiments in the 1840s in the United States. Uh, Brook Farm was the first secular one. <laughs> um, it was uh, so the joint stock company was formed on uh, in October 1841. Ten members. Fuller was invited, visited, never joined, but provided a cow, and this was the uh, the cow that Hawthorne said called the transcendental heifer. Uh, Hawthorne himself was uh, was one of the initial investors and inhabitants. He brought his family too. Uh, yeah, but he didn't. Uh, he, I think he kept his wife away a little for a while, or for most of it. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but he's like, look at how great it's fun to do work at the beginning. That's not a direct quote. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then at the end, he said the custom house was not so bad. As, oh yeah, <laughs> as the uh, um, thing. And they they really yeah, like I said, they were really into uh, uh, Charles Foyer, uh, and they had a birthday party f- for him once where somebody proposed to toast to him as the second coming of Christ. <laughs> yeah, actually, we'll go to uh, the uh, other biography that came out. Two, two big Margaret Fuller biographies, both, both very good, came out in 2013. This one is by Megan uh, Marshall. It's called Margaret Fuller, A New American Life. Now all seems fermenting to a new state. Margaret had boasted to Carrie Sturgis of her conversations for women early in 1840. The same could be said of her numerous schemes for reform or innovation that gained momentum in Boston during the century's fourth decade. 
The city of nearly 100,000 residents had been quick to recover from the 1837 financial panic and had suffered less than other mercantile centers on the eastern seaboard, its conservative banking industry reaping a rare reward in comparison to financial institutions in New York and Philadelphia, and securing Boston's place for the moment as the leading port of its size in the Union. The new prosperity seemed only to abet visionary plans born of the darker days, when Waldo had asked in his journal, shortly after delivering his incendiary Divinity School address, Is it not better to live in revolution than to live in dead times? Boston in the 1840s was, in Margaret's view, a locus of dissonance, of transition, of aspiration, where no three persons think alike. The fall of 1840 brought dreamers of all stripes together at Boston's Chardon Street Chapel, a plain-timbered, steepleless house of worship, newly built by Millerite Adventists at the foot of Beacon Hill, for a November meeting of the Friends of Universal Reform. The abolitionists William Lloyd Garrison and Maria Chapman were there, along with liberal religion's gray eminence, Reverend Channing, the young firebrand Theodore Parker, Waldo, and Margaret. Chagrined when a turbulent discussion snagged once again on a question of church reform, how best to observe the Sabbath, Margaret declared the meeting a total failure in a letter to William Channing, who'd resigned his pulpit in Cincinnati, and was contemplating a move to Brook Farm, or possibly to an association of his own design in western Massachusetts. I will not write to you of these conventions and communities unless they bear better fruit, she promised him. We are not ripe to reconstruct society yet. Still, like William and others at the convention, Margaret believed that one thing seems sure— Many persons will soon, somehow, somewhere, throw off a part, at least, of these terrible weights of the social contract. Just what Margaret's role in the rebellion would be, if any, remained unclear. She was as capable as any of the communitarians at arguing the difference between living and getting a living. To William she confessed that if she had a firmer hold on life, that is, had the money to invest in a share of a communal property, she might be inclined to sign on. But when George and Sarah Ripley traveled to Concord in a campaign to enroll Waldo in their experiment at Brook Farm, inviting Margaret and Bronson Alcott along for a hearing, Margaret held back. The failing's talk was useless, she reported afterward to Carrie, except in helping her make up her mind to abstain. The phalanx, that's an element of voyeurism. Mm. Divides society into these phalanxes. The phalanx talk was useless, she reported afterward to Carrie, except in helping her make up her mind to abstain. Margaret published two long essays endorsing the Brook Farmer's aims in successive issues of The Dial, written by Elizabeth Peabody, who shared Margaret's preference for city life over rural confraternity yet had opened her book room at West Street for the planning sessions of the Ripleys and their friends 
men and women, who have dared to say to one another, why not begin to move the mountain of custom and convention? Margaret sent Lloyd to school at Brook Farm and recommended the community to William Channing and to her Rhode Island friend Charles Newcomb, who boarded there for several months. She visited often enough to have a room in the communal hive designated as her own. But given what she'd learned of the limitations of human nature from one particular group of individuals, Margaret had come to believe that utopia is impossible to build up on Earth. Uh, now, she'll come to maybe revise that a little bit when she gets to Europe. Uh, now, that Brook Farm is what Hawthorne based the Blythedale romance on. And I think we might actually have to do that one, too. Yeah. You can is there a character in that that's loosely based on Fuller? Yeah, I think it's Zenobia. Or, uh, let me look that Zenobia. Up. Yeah, Zenobia. And uh, actually, we can go into a bit of Hawthorne nastiness here. Hawthorne <laughs> uh, bashing. Fuller and Hawthorne did get along fairly well, and there was a point where they were even spending a lot of time in the in the Concord together, um, having talks and stuff. Where actually Emerson got jealous, I think, at one point of them. <laughs> but here is this is from Brenda Wineapple's uh, biography of Hawthorne. So basically, Hawthorne and Hawthorne might have been upset that Fuller. Uh, he was sort of, she was sort of lukewarm about Twice Told Tales, said that Hawthorne intimates and suggests, but he does not uh, lay bare the mysteries of our being, that his style was placid and his command of language indolent. Um, it's a fair it, criticism. It's a very restrained criticism, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah, didn't didn't uncover the, the truth of the universe. And, uh, and uh, Wineapple writes, eight years after Fuller's premature death, uh, Hawthorne retaliated with vitriolic pleasure. Writing in his notebooks in 1858, he characterized his former friend as uh, quote, as lacking, quote, the charm of womanhood and a humbug. <laughs> Shameless. Yeah. She's dead. And a humbug, uh, talented, yes, but uh. arrogantly determined to, quote, make herself the greatest, wisest, best woman of the age. And to that end, she set to work on her strong, heavy, unpliable and in many respects defective and evil nature and adorned it with a mosaic of admirable qualities such as she chose (laughs) to possess. Uh. And, uh, and he used her spirit, uh, to, uh, as an inspiration for Hester Prynne in the Scarlet Letter. Uh, A lot of Mm -hmm. uh, Hester's more liberal and forward-thinking ideas are inspired by women in the 19th century. And I think um, she had a bit of a run-in with Hawthorne's wife, Sophia, right? Yeah. Uh, I think in the Great Lawsuit, which was the essay that was the sort of germ of women in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. she has quite a strident critique of marriage and... Sophia Hawthorne came back to her saying like, well, actually, you know, if you were actually married, Margaret, you would have the the credibility to make this. Yeah. This yeah. You can't really say anything. It's That's like, such a killer uh, argument. I love that. Just being like, oh, you think it's a institution that enslaves women? Well, why don't you put on some shackles? And maybe <laughs> yeah. you tell me. That's like the, uh, the, the, the sports press conference. Like, oh, you think a 90... 90- Eight mile hour fastball is easy to hit. Why don't you get in the yeah. baddest <laughs> box? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so the great lawsuit, uh, I think it seems to me like maybe the best thing Dial ever published. This was published in 1843 after she was done uh, being the editor. Uh, and like you said, later expanded into women in the 19th century. Lydia Maria Child, who um, uh, studied and sort of t- mentored a little bit Fuller earlier in life, uh, she's also a writer. She wrote a um, Hobamaka, one of the first, even preceded, I think, Last of the Mohicans, and maybe did pre- what? it was definitely before uh, Sedgwick and mm-hmm. Hope Leslie. Um, and she and then she later wrote an abolitionist uh, uh, argument. Um, but she told uh, Fuller that the great lawsuit was um, there's too much furniture in her rooms, meaning way too many allusions and references <laughs> to like your classical thought and biblical thought mm-hmm. and you know all this different stuff, um, which I think is we can maybe move on to a woman in the 19th century mm. now actually um, just to I guess to zoom through the chronology a little bit. I think that criticism is absolutely correct, but it, yeah. it happens to be one of the charms, I think, of the work that it's like a vortex of information. And it's so mm-hmm. smart that it doesn't have chapters or any kind mm-hmm. of... There is order to it, but not any order that is easily understood. It's just a, it's just this like whirlwind of information uh, that you're supposed to like grasp this totality of this vision that this writer has. Yeah, so uh, basically she publishes The Great Lawsuit in the Dial in 1843, and that's also a big year for her because she travels to Illinois and Wisconsin um, and writes The Summer on the Lakes, which we won't talk uh, discuss too much, uh, but it's basically a, a sort of um, strangely structured, joycianly structured uh, journey through to the Great Lakes where she... Uh, she meet yeah she actually sees uh native americans for the first time um and interacts with them yeah and uh and it's interesting because apparently in that she like she'll talk about how this is my interaction with these native americans and then she'll retreat to talking about like this writer says this about native americans it's uh, like no you have your experience just go with that but she still needs to like basically live it through uh text almost that was a cool anecdote in the marshall biography about how she there was like a crazy storm one day and she sheltered in the hut of like a native American woman and actually had, was using sign language to communicate with her because they Mm. didn't have a common language. Right. Right. Um, And that, that was kind of, that made a big impact on her. Yeah. And uh, when she gets back to Massachusetts, she becomes the first woman to access the Harvard library in uh, research for it. Yeah. And apparently all of the young Harvard men were just like, ogling this strange creature among them yeah. for the first time. And she would have been how old at that point? She would have been... Like 29 or 30, maybe. Um, 1843, and she's 1810, right? 33. Yeah, she would have been 33. Um, so yeah, then she publishes Somewhere on the Lakes. Uh, it's called by one reviewer as like the only legit American book this year, but it doesn't. it sells okay, but not great. Wasn't it also illustrated... Oh, I don't, I'm not sure if it was or not. I think it came with illustrations. And uh, and then she starts, she accept, uh, accepts Horace Greeley's offer to write uh, basically front page uh, columns for him and opinion articles. And to move to New York. Yeah, to well. move to New York. Big She's, move. Yeah, literary yeah, society was, here. Yeah. 
finally got out of the backwoods of the quote-unquote intelligentsia in Boston into a real metropolitan uh, center of learning. Uh, but it's so interesting that in New York, she feels like she's left the... Kind of America's like intellectual center of gravity is still in Boston. Yeah. But America's like commercial and, I guess, social engine is New York. Right. Yeah, America's Athens, as Jefferson referred to, Boston. <laughs> I think she just needed to get away from Emerson, basically. Oh, yeah. She also... Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. too much. Uh, a lot of this is... There's a definite, like, romantic trials and tribulations that are underlying a lot of... Like, she's going through shit when she's, like, producing works and stuff like that. It's, it's in, very interesting. I think Marshall is, like, good enough... Or seems to hint at that there was some sort of, like, attempt to recreate her relationship her difficult her relationship father. with her father. Mm. Marshall's not the only person to yeah. say that. Uh, she literally, she's explicit about that with Emerson. Like I'm looking for a father figure sort yeah. of thing. Um, and, uh, and, and I think she finally outgrows that a bit with Osoli, uh, who she ends oh, up having definitely. a child with. Cause he, she's like way intellectually his superior. And they don't have a common language either. Mm. Literally, like right. only body language <laughs> happening there. Yeah, the universal language, body language. I'm going to go back to this Interlock Media um, article a bit on her time at the New York Tribune. Oh, and we also get a bit of a Harry Martineau's critique of the conversations. Still the law of the land. Anything they were seen as elitist and as um, maybe a waste of time. Um, especially by some abolitionists. Harriet Martineau, the, the British abolitionist, she had been a friend of Fuller's, and when she had visited the United States on one of her trips, um, Fuller was in the midst of, of you know, conducting her conversations. And years later, when Martineau wrote her autobiography, she sort of famously critiqued um, Fuller and her other um, conversation attendees for talking about the arts and literature um, when, at the same time, you know, slavery was still the law of the land. They should have been doing something actively um, towards, you know, working to abolish slavery rather than sitting around gorgeously dressed, as she said. She wanted to do something very different, to break out of Concord, of Boston. She was, it seemed as though she was done. She was ready to move on. She had an invitation to write, be the front page columnist for Horace Greeley's New York Tribune. Well, most of her friends were skeptical about her opportunities to advance critical thinking and intellectual culture through a medium that was as popular and as uh, often sensationalist as newspapers then. She thought she saw opportunity. While she's working for the Tribune, um, she's interested not only in literary criticism, but also in um, starting to write about the social conditions in the city and traveling and visiting insane asylums, if you will, and visiting pr prisons. And so, in fact, when she goes to Sing Sing prison, to the women's prison there, she actually holds her conversations. Margaret Fuller's involvement with the women prisoners at Sing Sing was really quite uh, pivotal for her. In fact, she would later write in Women in the 19th Century, there was nothing uh, different between the woman who powders her hair in the boudoir and the, and the streetwalker. Um, in fact, she found the streetwalker to be more credible, more genuine, more honest. She also spoke out against, in the pages of the Tribune, the war with Mexico and Texas, and even Texas. We'll get to the war with Mexico and Texas a bit later, but uh, as hinted there, the uh, the Sing Sing experience uh, played a big role in leading up to her writing of A Woman in the 19th Century, uh, basically 
extrapolating from the great lawsuit. And the, the I don't know if we've stressed this enough, is the reason she talks about mythological figures and from Greek uh, Greek mythology and you know biblical mythology and so whatever is uh, she wants to highlight female role models. Like these are women that are doing things that are supposedly masculine through our lens, but if you look at them in different uh, cultural contexts, uh, then you can see that actually these attributes aren't exclusive to men, for instance. And in a certain way, that's what we're doing here, but just the model is to reveal those figures in history in a light that uh, society as it is now would maybe obscure. Yeah, like to dig up a lineage that no one's bothered to connect yet. Right. And I also think that she's using those examples to serve another kind of rhetorical purpose, which is that she's very interested in universal values. And I was struck reading Women in the 19th Century by the extent to which she's basically formulating a theory of universal human rights a hundred years before the Declaration of Human Rights was signed. And I think at one point she even uses that phrase. Um, and so I think when she's pointing at these like classical models, what she's also saying is this is timeless. Like human perfectibility is something that has always been on the table and always will be on the table. Mm, right. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's one of her great strengths is that she ties the concept of women's liberation is both this kind of new and bold concept but then like you said grace like steeps it in this tradition is to say that that she's smart enough to look back and say like this struggle has been going on uh since like people have been writing down myths to explain themselves and so Mm -hmm. like it's like i'm just one more link in the chain that will lead us to utopia and this might also be something that you know, the one part of the transcendentalist experience that she retains is this idea of universality mm-hmm. of experience and virtue and morality and so on. I think of like the the idea of like the importance of revolution also, I think is something that she was took much further than the transcendentalist, but like that transcendentalist like theme of like a revolution is good because it allows the present moment and the past to face each other and look each other in the eye. Mm. And I think mm. Margaret Fuller is someone who took that very seriously in a way that the people who may have wrote it did not. Mm. And basically lived it when yeah. she went to Europe later. Yeah, so uh, I want to play this uh, once again from John Matson's The Lives of Margaret Fuller. Um, and this is on, uh, on the uh, women in the 19th century. Fuller saved for her closing pages the lines that were to become the signature statement of her book. But if you ask me what offices they, women, may fill, I reply, any. I do not care what case you put. Let them be sea captains, if you will. The writing of women in the 19th century and the experiences that had inspired it marked a turning point in Fuller's thinking. As a younger woman, she had never been political by nature. Indeed, her lack of interest in public affairs had elicited some of her father's most scalding criticism. Her preferred solutions had always been cerebral. The key to life had always lain in the evolution and reform of one's inner consciousness. Fuller still believed in the primacy of one's inner world. However, 
as her revisions of the great lawsuit made clear, she was more conscious than before of the ways in which the real world could thwart one's yearnings for perfection. Toward the end of woman in the nineteenth century, using the masculine noun, but clearly speaking of all humankind, Fuller observed, To address man wisely, you must not forget that his life is partly animal, subject to the same laws with nature. But you cannot address him wisely unless you consider him still more as a soul and appreciate the conditions and destiny of soul. Fuller's meditations on the imprisonment of the human soul had led her to realize that the spirit could not be separated from the life of the body or from life in society. Her visits to Sing Sing had reminded her that poverty and physical abuse and neglect can destroy a soul as efficiently as any more metaphysical devil. The ends that she now proposed were to be attained not solely through scholarship or Concord-style philosophizing, but also by society's reform. In Woman in the Nineteenth Century, she evinces the understanding that the spiritual is the social and, as many more in later times would realize, the personal is the political. Her thought was more balanced, practical, and holistic than ever before. Woman in the Nineteenth Century also signaled a more generally significant broadening, one that affected the cause of women's rights as a whole. To the very limited extent that the condition of women had entered the national discussion before Fuller published her book, the controversy had turned principally on questions of law, the right of married women to own property, the right to divorce, and to have custody of children, and, in extremely radical circles, the right to vote. In their very framing, legal questions tended to emphasize the differences between the sexes. Fuller's argument looked beyond these categories. To a wide audience, woman in the 19th century expressed the conviction that the legal issues, though critical to the advancement of women, were only ancillary to a higher objective, the self-realization of human beings, both male and female. Fuller's book made its greatest contribution to women's rights by setting the terms of this self-realization. It called on its audience to recognize that masculine and feminine are fluid classifications, and that talent must be respected and developed without regard to the type of body in which it resides. That strikes me as sort of a utilitarian uh, argument. Like we, we often talk about poverty, right? As as through these metrics that seem to be a little bit secondary, like. Uh, like this is how many patents we could be have having filed by would be inventors if we didn't have childhood poverty and undereducate oh. certain groups. So oh, it's like, it's okay. always framed in terms of people's contribution to like the marketplace. Yeah, and I, Those I refugees could be the next Steve Jobs. Yeah. Oh yeah, the entrepreneur refugee <laughs> trope. That's my favorite. And I don't think Fuller necessarily like. We have the luxury of seeing that play out. You know, Fuller's still like, can we let women read um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, and uh, express themselves in, in you know, public forums? Oops. That concept about the having masculine and feminine features is that there's so many writers 
that are going to touch on that idea. Most notably, at least for me, was uh, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Mm. Mm. She directly touches that, like so much so that I it seems clear to me that she must have read this. Yeah, uh, definitely. Actually, yeah. There's a quote I have, which is from A Room of One's Own, because I had to go through it, because I was like, I've read this before. Right. And she says, And I went on amor- amateurishly to sketch a plan of the soul, so that in each of us two powers preside, one male, one female. And in the man's brain, the man predominates over the woman, and in the woman's brain, the woman predominates over the man. Right. The normal and comfortable state of being is that when the two live in harmony together, spiritually cooperating. If one is a man, still the woman part of his brain must have effect, and a woman also must have intercourse with the man in her. Mm. On that as well, I just want to mention, in Women in the 19th Century, she... And as a Shelley fangirl, I have to (laughs) quote this. Um, When she's talking about the masculine and feminine kind of like partaking of one another and mingling, uh, she says, I must mention Shelley, who, like all men of genius, shared the feminine development and, unlike many, knew it. Mm. Which is just, I think, such a wonderful, like, pithy little sentence. Um, So all men of genius have something of like the feminine in them, but only some of them know it. And I just love that. Yeah. Did you see in the biography when she described herself as thoroughly Byronized? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And she was really inspired of him going off into the war of Greek independence, which is something that she would recreate. Right, exactly. All right, uh, let's keep going a bit with Matson. Fuller had taken the great lesson of her conversations to a more visible place. She had invited the women of her nation to seek their highest worth, and she had challenged men to respect them for it. The later, more widely acknowledged founders of the American women's rights movement, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, acknowledged Fuller's inspiration, and women in the 19th century led them to aver that Fuller had possessed more influence on the thought of American women than any woman previous to her time. Carried to the finish line by a final rush of inspiration, Fuller completed the draft of Woman in the 19th Century on November 17, 1844. After a long walk on an exhilarating morning, she sat down to write and marveled as the words kept spinning out beneath her hand, until just before nine in the evening, she was done. At last, she felt she had done something worthy of a small slice of immortality. She wrote to William Henry Channing, I felt a delightful glow, as if I had put a good deal of my true life in it, as if, suppose I went away now, the measure of my footprint would be left on the earth. Her only concern, though it did not much deter her, was her sense that her writing demanded too much culture in the reader to be quickly or extensively diffused. (laughs) Yet, it probably occurred to her that it had to be so. To claim that women were entitled to civil and economic rights, it was helpful to demonstrate that one woman, at least, was more than the intellectual equal of the sex that already enjoyed them. She hoped that the book, which was somewhat longer than an issue of the dial, might be out by Christmas. However, although she signed a contract with Greeley's own publishing imprint, Greeley and McElrath, in late November, Woman in the 19th Century, 
did not appear until February 16, 1845. The reception was beyond anything Fuller had dared to imagine. She had told Channing that she hoped it might sell a thousand copies in a few years' time. The first edition of 1500 was sold within a week. Though denying that money had been her object, Fuller cheerfully pocketed the $85 that came her way yeah. and took her popular success as the most speaking fact about the book, as well as the one that most pleased her. <clears throat> Meanwhile, although conservative reviewers were quick to chastise her perceived radicalism, more moderate voices praised her as a thinking, right-judging person and ranked her achievement with that of the great English rights advocate Mary Wollstonecraft. The book is the theme of all the newspapers and many of the journals, Fuller reported to her brother Eugene. Sweeter still, she was able to add, respect is expressed for me personally. In a letter to Carrie Sturgis, with a mixture of pride and surprise, Fuller reported seeing placards around New York hailing woman in the 19th century as the great book of the age. She was, at last, a literary celebrity. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, I saw, I think, uh, I can't remember who it was, but mentioned that this is maybe the... Uh, first uh major feminist work in english since wollstonecraft i guess we can play a few selections uh from women in the, women in the 19th century there's a great full recording of it done by of course the god the god elizabeth clett thank you elizabeth the best uh she reads this um i guess let's start with the intro uh first uh three uh three and a half minutes just to get a sense of where she's going what what kind of writing uh fuller is it's there was a joke uh at the brook farm where they said we uh we read dante in the original german <laughs> uh, i can't remember who the other one was dante in the original italian and margaret like fuller in the, in the german yeah or was it Goethe in the, yeah and dante in the italian and margaret fuller in the english <laughs> um and i i mean that's mainly a, a, because she does a lot of like untranslated uh selections from other languages and stuff like that which is awesome love that stuff because as a person who barely speaks uh, who speaks like remedial spanish and french <laughs> just throw some latin and german in yeah i guess i, I guess i just won't know what it <laughs> says <laughs> and yet somehow when she does it it's like so much easier to cope with than when henry james does it oh yeah I, I don't know. There's, there's just something about... What's well, so stylized? <laughs> it's like her jumping around for me is like part of the pleasure of reading it, of being like, oh, let's talk about this Orphic legend. Actually, let's talk about Christ. Actually, here's yeah. a Latin poem really quick. Yeah. I also think that she's basically, whenever she writes, she is modeling the kind of citizen that she thinks America needs. So yeah. like you can kind of read her whole career as an attempt to raise the standards. Like everywhere she's talking about like, you know, we should have higher standards for like women's education. We should expect more of men. We shouldn't just dismiss men as like having these desires that leads to <clears throat> a demand for like prostitution and stuff. Her whole thing is like, we have to be better. Right. So. Yeah. I definitely think she saw herself as unique, like uniquely, uh, intellectual 
but not in a way that other people couldn't overcome. Mm, not exclusive. She was very, yeah, she was yeah. very democratic in that sense where she really felt that like, I could do that. Anyone can do what I can do. You just have to put in the time. Yeah, and she also like recognized her father's role in that too. Yeah. Um, she, she wrote a couple different things uh, with different sort of emotional responses to it. One if sort of like classically dark romantic this is the father it's like the, the father in a bronte novel or something like that like yeah very uh, uh awful um which in no, in no doubt partially true but also she wrote things saying like it's good that he you know thought to uh, uh took such a, a interest in educating his child uh, his daughter so here's uh from uh, elizabeth Klett's recording and we're we're not going to play too much from this, but I recommend it. People listen to it. It's a good listen. It's probably a better listen than it is a better read, frankly. Mm. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Woman in the 19th Century and Kindred Papers Relating to the Sphere, Condition, and Duties of Women by Margaret Fuller. Woman in the 19th Century, Part 1 Preface to Woman in the Nineteenth Century The following essay is a reproduction, modified and expanded, of an article published in The Dial, Boston, July 1843, under the title of The Great Lawsuit, Man versus Men, Woman versus Women. This article excited a good deal of sympathy, and still more interest. It is in compliance with wishes expressed from many quarters that it is prepared for publication in its present form. Objections having been made to the former title as not sufficiently easy to be understood, the present has been substituted as expressive of the main purpose of the essay, though by myself the other is preferred, partly for the reason others do not like it, that is, that it requires some thought to see what it means, and might thus prepare the reader to meet me on my own ground. Besides, it offers a larger scope, and is, in that way, more just to my desire. I meant by that title to intimate the fact that, while it is the destiny of man in the course of the ages to ascertain and fulfil the law of his being, so that his life shall be seen as a whole to be that of an angel or messenger, the action of prejudices and passions which attend in the day the growth of the individual is continually obstructing the holy work that is to make the earth a part of heaven. By man I mean both man and woman. These are the two halves of one thought. I lay no especial stress on the welfare of either, I believe that the development of the one cannot be effected without that of the other. My highest wish is that this truth should be distinctly and rationally apprehended, and the conditions of life and freedom recognized as the same for the daughters and the sons of time, twin exponents of a divine thought. I solicit a sincere and patient attention from those who open the following pages at all. I solicit of women that they will lay it to heart to ascertain what is for them the liberty of law. It is for this, and not for any the largest extension of partial privileges that I seek. I ask them, if interested by these suggestions, to search their own experience and intuitions for better, and fill up with fit materials the trenches that hedge them in. From men I ask a noble and earnest attention to anything that can be offered on this great and still obscure subject, such as I have met from many with whom I stand in private relations. And may truth, unpolluted by prejudice, vanity, or selfishness, be granted daily more and more as the due of inheritance, and only valuable conquest for us all. November, 1844 Woman in the Nineteenth Century Frailty, thy name is woman. The earth waits for her queen. 
The connection between these quotations may not be obvious, but it is strict. Yet would any contradict us if we made them applicable to the other side, and began also... So yeah, uh, Margaret uh, launches right into sort of uh, deconstruction of literature, basically. Mm -hmm. I guess just to note the ambitiousness of the work from the outset, like her preface is very self-conscious in that respect, and I think that you see even with the title of the work, Woman in the 19th Century, that she is acutely aware of her place in history. She has this historical consciousness of progress and time that is very distinctive. Yeah, it's funny how closely parallels Thomas Piketty's uh, Capital in the 21st Century. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, like the, They're both sort of like, I think, probably the same sort of self-consciously grandiose, uh, this is my magnum opus sort of thing. Yeah, and I, I love how even in, in the opening, how she uh, plays around with concepts of genre because it's not going to be a straight journalistic piece and it's not mm -hmm. going to be so much like a philosophical inquiry and it's not going to be a sermon, but yet like it is all of these things. And there, there's like adages in there too, like these brilliant little mm -hmm. diamonds. Right. And she just kind of efforts, effortlessly, effortlessly, I don't know, we'll figure yeah. something out. You want, take another, you want to take another run? Effortlessly. No, I can't do it. Effortlessly? Effort. <laughs> Without <laughs> effort. All right, well, I guess I'll have a stroke in about 10 minutes. <laughs> Uh, but she weaves these in and out, and I think that's that's a very transcendental uh, thing to do. Or it's something that she picked up and astutely used from her uh, contemporaries. Right. And another thing to note is her relentless optimism. Like yes. for all of her, she can be quite biting and quite <clears throat> cutting with her social commentary, but ultimately she is animated by this belief that things are going to get better and progress is possible. And it's very enlightenment centric. Like she talks about different types of, of attaining wisdom mm -hmm. and how you do mm -hmm. that through going through the world. Um, and talk about her biting criticism. She really starts to heat up towards the end of part one here. And so let's go to that. When such crimes were committed in her name. Yes, man, born to purify and animate the unintelligent and the cold, can in his madness degrade and pollute no less the fair and the chaste. Yet truth was prophesied in the ravings of that hideous fever, caused by long ignorance and abuse. Europe is conning a valued lesson from the blood-stained page. The same tendencies, further <laughs> unfolded, will bear good fruit in this country. Yet by men in this country, as by the Jews when Moses was leading them to the promised land, everything has been done that inherited depravity could do to hint so that parallel with Moses leading Jews to the promised land is something Americans are very conscious of as they're settling the country. Mm -hmm. Under the promise of heaven from its fulfillment. The cross, here as elsewhere, has been planted only to be blasphemed by cruelty and fraud. The name of the Prince of Peace has been profaned by all kinds of injustice towards the Gentile whom he said he came to save. But I need not speak of what has been done towards the red man, the black man, those deeds are the scoff of the world, and they have been accompanied by such pious words that the gentlest would not dare to intercede with, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here, as elsewhere, the gain of creation consists always in the growth of individual minds, which live and aspire as flowers bloom and birds sing in the midst of morasses, and in the continual development of that thought, the thought of human destiny, which is given to eternity adequately to express, and which ages of failure only seemingly impede. Only seemingly. And whatever seems to the contrary, 
this country is as surely destined to elucidate a great moral law as Europe was to promote the mental culture of man. Though the national independence be blurred by the servility of individuals, though freedom and equality have been proclaimed only to leave room for a monstrous display of slave-dealing and slave-keeping, though the free American so often feels himself free, like the Roman, only to pamper his appetites, end his indolence through the misery of his fellow-beings, still it is not in vain that the verbal statement has been made, all men are born free and equal. There it stands, a golden certainty wherewith to encourage the good, to shame the bad. The new world may be called clearly to perceive that it incurs the utmost penalty if it reject or oppress the sorrowful brother. And if men are deaf, the angels hear. But men cannot be deaf. It is inevitable that an external freedom, an independence of the encroachments of other men, such as been achieved for the nation, should be so also for every member of it. That which has once been clearly conceived in the intelligence cannot fail, sooner or later, to be acted out. It has become a law as irrevocable as that of the Medes in their ancient dominion. Men will privately sin against it, but the law, as expressed by a leading mind of the age, tutti fatti a semblanza d'un solo, fili tutti d'un solo riscatto, in qualora, in qual parti del suolo. Yeah, yeah, we get it, uh, fellow. <laughs> um, but yeah, that the, the citing of the all men are created equal, uh, with the, the consciousness that it, they didn't mean it as literally as she would have liked it at the time. Nonetheless, it remains a sort of like uh, a message from the angels of uh, where progress is headed. Uh, it's very fascinating to me. I don't know how self-conscious she is about that. There's another point where she uses, a, I think it's a biblical phrase, peace, peace, where there is no peace. That uh, I don't know if you remember that, but I, I think it came up in the uh, in Hope Leslie as well. That, oh, yeah. Um, uh, and then I want to move a little bit further into the tail end of uh, of this part one here. ...from the harangue to go into our closet and shut the door. There inquires the spirit, Is this rhetoric the bloom of healthy blood, or a false pigment artfully laid on? And yet again we know where is so much smoke must be some fire. With so much talk about virtue and freedom must be mingled some desire for them that it cannot be in vain that such have become the common topics of conversation among men, rather than schemes for tyranny and plunder, that the very newspapers see it best to proclaim themselves pilgrims, Puritans, heralds of holiness. The king that maintains so costly a retinue cannot be a mere boast or carabas fiction. We have waited here long in the dust. We are tired and hungry. But the triumphal procession must appear at last. Of all its banners, None has been more steadily upheld, and under none have more valour and willingness for real sacrifices been shown, than that of the champions of the enslaved African. And this band it is, which partly from a natural following out of principles, partly because many women have been prominent in that cause, makes just now the warmest appeal in behalf of woman. Though there has been a growing liberality on this subject, yet society at large is not so prepared for the demands of this party, but that its members are, and will be for some time, coldly regarded as the Jacobins of their day. "'Is it not enough,' cries the irritated trader, "'that you have done all you could to break up the national union, and thus destroy the prosperity I of our country, point. but now you must be trying to break up family union, to take my wife away from the cradle and the kitchen-hearth to vote at polls, and preach from a pulpit? Of course, if she does such things, she cannot attend to those of her own sphere.' She is happy enough as she is. 
She has more leisure than I have, every means of improvement, every indulgence. Have you asked her whether she was satisfied with these indulgences? No, but I know she is. She is too amiable to desire what would make me unhappy, and too judicious to wish to step beyond the sphere of her sex. I will never consent to have our peace disturbed by any such discussions. Consent? You? It is not consent from you that is in question. It is assent from your wife. Am not I the head of my house? You are not the head of your wife. God has given her a mind of her own. I am the head, and she the heart. God grant you play true to one another, then. I suppose I am to be grateful that you did not say she was only the hand. If the head repress no natural pulse of the heart, there can be no question as to your giving your consent. Both will be of one accord, and there needs but to present any question to get a full and true answer. There is no need of precaution, of indulgence, nor consent. But our doubt is whether the heart does consent with the head, or only obeys its decrees with a passiveness that precludes the exercise of its natural powers, or a repugnance that turns sweet qualities to bitter, or a doubt that lays waste the fair occasions of life. It is to ascertain the truth that we propose some liberating measures. Thus vaguely are these questions proposed and discussed at present. But their being proposed at all implies much thought, and suggests more. Many women are considering within themselves what they need that they have not, and what they can have if they find they need it. Many men are considering whether women are capable of being and having more than they are and have, and, whether if so, it will be best to consent to improvement in their condition. End of section three. Yeah, so I think just amazing. Um, this is, Woman in the 19th Century, um, you should read this. You should uh, particularly download this Elizabeth Clett recording from LibriVox. Uh, it's also available as a podcast if you search your podcast mm -hmm. feed for it, the, the, the Clett version. Um, do you guys have any other parts of the uh, you want to talk about? It's It's kind of interesting that although she is very kind of sharp in her critique of marriage and obviously she, like she has an agenda there she's very careful to point out that she's not being prescriptive like she's not saying that all women need to uh you know um, choose not to get married and become a reformer like her she's just saying people need to be free to be able to do what they like in that respect it's kind of like a a very there's like a gentleness to her criticism which is interesting and she also defends uh on the other hand spinsters um mm. basically like yeah like lay off of them basically yeah she's just saying like you know if, if you want to be like a nice wife or if you want to be a spinster that's cool let's just let everybody kind of fulfill their nature right yeah she revels in the like the uniqueness of the average human being in a way that I think we all like America has paid played lip service to since its inception. But it's not really true for most thinkers. They usually just want like some sort of uniform America. Mm. Whereas Margaret Fuller is like, I want like universal equality. And then from that, I want this like panoply of mm. different souls that will uh, spring forth from that. Yeah. She did want fewer uh, Irish immigrants. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Where was, where was that? Uh, it might have been in the Madison one. Um, it wasn't a huge like 
uh, bailiwick for her, but she mentions it in poem. And there's another poem where she uh, she puts the words "Ameriki" into the uh, <laughs> the uh, in, in the, like lower classes. Like you can't even say the name right. You're not like living up to our. You're not living up to our. Uh, uh, Republican uh, civic, you know, civic Republicanism or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but yeah. uh, but in terms, I think we can of, all co-sign on that. I think yeah. we're going to just like dodge past that. That we can't just allow like <laughs> little anti-Irish sentiment. Yeah, uh, but I mean, look. Uh, besides that, she's great. Um, here is uh, this is from. Uh, oh, so let's uh, let's move on. Right, do we have anything more to say on women in the twenty-fifth century? Besides, uh, uh, check out the Clut version. Yeah, there's a couple. Of, there's just a couple like grades I liked that like just uh, highlight one or two. There's she has this line: hypocrisy is the most hopeless as well as the meanest of crimes, and that those must surely be polluted by it who do not reserve part of their morality and religion uh, for private use. And I love that phrase that it's like your religion and your morality are not private use, right? And it has even greater meaning. I feel like. Uh, for today like you it's actually a public good your morality and if you're not using it in the public sphere uh it's the worst crime you can do right uh she publishes that and then she uh and then is where she really lifts off and leaves a transcendentalist behind from my part um she uh, in 1846 uh when she's working for the uh Greeley Tribune she denounces a war with Mexico um, we'll get some quotes from her, but basically she she sees it, uh, recognizes it at the time as they just want to um, expand slavery into Texas. Uh, our good buddy uh, Hawthorne felt differently. That's uh, shocking. Uh, he said, uh, it's not so much a, a calamity as others do, which is like... <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. I mean, it's so... That is the conservative thing, right? Look at this. You got Mexican War Derangement Syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, it's, it's, not, it's never really dealing with is it good or bad. It's just that the libs are overreacting. Yeah. I wish we could live in a world without war, too. But I'm oh. also an adult. This shit, this shit is the same. It's the mm-hmm. same. Conservatism is the same mm-hmm. throughout time. And meanwhile, Thoreau is languishing in prison for like precisely one night because he refused to pay his taxes yeah. as a protest against the war before yeah. Emerson bails him out. Right. Which I just love. Yeah. Those anecdote. two boys. I just love. Uh, yeah, we need it. We, we will do uh, Emerson and Thoreau too. Um, but I think Fuller, we get to Fuller first because she's the best of all of them. She is yeah. the best. Um, but so, to, to tie it also with what you're saying with the Mexican uh, American war is like when you talk about the, um, uh, liberal derangement syndrome or whatever like it was about as unpopular to be against the mexican-american war as it was with like the invasion of iraq oh yeah that like right. if, especially if you were a public person mm-hmm. which is what made lincoln so unique at that time when he was a legislator in illinois that he uh, said it's a stupid war hell yeah hmm. so yeah so like th- there's like very another, very few yeah like another, like another illinois president representative illinois. yeah who also waged war but not on his own people yeah exactly <laughs> The Righteous War. Yeah. Uh, Continuing Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind it's, of Syria. It's very much our, our civil war. Um, okay, but no. I, just to extend a little further, um, it's interesting that she saw that war as imperialist. And that yeah. like she framed it in those terms and used that language. I wasn't aware that there were critiques 
like that happening at this point in the 19th century. Yeah, it's weird that that history sort of helps people forget that those were made coterminously. Yeah. Nobody... I like all these people talking about the Iraq war, like, gosh, everybody got this wrong. No, there was a, <laughs> there was a specific subset of people ideologically that did not get this wrong. Biggest protest in the Tons history of, of America. People. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. The, the and biggest in the UK. Pro- right, well. yeah. People knew it was a fucking disaster. They just I, didn't have access to power. I think kind of like what we're kind of jumping off from what you were saying, Grace, that uh, it, it only underlines the tragedy of her... Um, premature death that much that there were mm. a number of people like her that were framing these issues as an imperialist or tying the imperialist project with the expansion of slavery directly and they these people wouldn't start like converging until like the mid um 1850s in the formation of the radical republican party and you i can only imagine what would have taken place had she been there for like for those years basically mm. Apparently, she was due to take over the like chairwomanship of the the convention that followed Seneca Falls in yeah. 1848. Oh, really? Like after she got back from America, she was going to take up this position. Yeah, it was in the mail, right, waiting for her. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah. Okay. So just to go back, so in yeah 1846, she denounces war with Mexico. Then she travels to Europe as the first female foreign correspondent, and it's not like it took that long, right? Foreign correspondents weren't a major thing. Um, journalism was this was like the height of new journalism, right? We talked about it in the Edgar the Hans Fall episode. Uh, the early penny press. Um, and she kind of turned it into that, like, right, like the idea, her chance to go to Europe came up first and she was able to kind of bend it and she was able to get her editor, Horace Greeley, oh, yeah, on board went, with it. Didn't she go as a tutor to it? Like, she couldn't afford to go on her own. So she, like, jumped at the chance to join this wealthier family as a tutor to that child. That's how she got to Europe. Writing dispatches, yeah, just to basically top I mean, herself up. It's the gig economy. Yeah. Yeah. 1840s. Also shows what an incredible mentor Horace Greeley was, especially in comparison to Emerson. Oh, Greeley, yeah, exactly. Oh, he facilitated so much yeah, for her. Well, he, he fucking paid her. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> he's like her only patron, basically. And he paid her fairly because she negotiated a fair salary, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Marshall makes a point about that. Okay, so uh, I want to go back to my uh, pal, and uh, I, I've, I've included a uh, note card in there with the section we're going to play here. Um, I want to play from Strange Nation, uh, a book I've cited multiple times by J. Gerald Kennedy. Uh, and this goes in uh, it's a final uh, section here, um, and it goes into uh, basically Fuller traveling to europe uh she spends she basically goes through uh the uk and then uh france and italy and gets more and more radical as that that time goes on in a sense fuller's segmented narrative presents itself as a tale of three cities london paris and rome each representing a key phase in her radicalization to be sure many important events occurred elsewhere Yet these three fabled centers of culture each confronted her with vivid new instances of the social injustices that fueled revolutionary sentiment in Europe. These cities reveal different levels of unrest, forms of injustice, and strategies of opposition. In each, Fuller met powerful personalities who compelled her to see social reform in new ways and to gravitate toward armed resistance as the inevitable consequence of aristocratic, and ecclesiastical, tyranny over the common people. 
Throughout this radicalization, Fuller kept in mind her U.S. readers and recurrently viewed European events in the context of America's revolutionary nationhood. In an age of national revolutions, she positioned herself to interpret for her compatriots, caught in the toils of slavery and Western conquest, the US-Mexico War, the troubling American implications of the European struggle. Tracing the effects of the continental uprisings of 1848 on the writers of the American literary renaissance, Reynolds has underscored the markedly different responses of Fuller and Emerson to the culture of revolution and the rise of republicanism, as well as socialism, in Europe. And while this contrast may be explained, as Reynolds notes, partly by the differing purposes of their travel, Emerson went abroad in 1847 to lecture and to find inspiration for new essays, it also seems clear that Fuller's sojourn produced a psychological and ideological break with Emerson, despite the continuation of a cordial correspondence. As Reynolds indicates, Emerson and Fuller had utterly different reactions to England the former impressed by the country's power and prosperity, the latter dismayed by contrasting wealth and squalor. Emerging differences of sensibility led Fuller finally to reject two crucial tenets of Emersonian thought, the primacy of individualism and the ineffectiveness of cooperative reform efforts. Reynolds suggests that in Paris Fuller made a decisive turn toward the socialist thought that she fully embraced in Italy. But Fuller's London experience, it might be argued, made her receptivity to French social thought and her break with Emerson utterly inevitable. Fuller reached London only after a harrowing and portentous ordeal in Scotland, where she got lost in the mist and spent a cold night alone on the far side of Ben Lomond. After a brief recuperation, she resumed a journey that thereafter focused more on culture than nature, taking her to the great cities, where she contemplated the deformities of a social order fraught with oppression. Leaving the bucolic highlands, Fuller became increasingly absorbed by poverty and exploitation. In Glasgow she observed people, especially women, dressed in dirty, wretched tatters, and reflected ominously, Need indeed is glaring throughout Scotland and England for the devoutest application of intellect and love to the cure of ills that cry aloud, and, without such application, must ere very long seek help by other means than words. She extracted from the architecture of Stirling Castle a moral about contemporary upstairs-downstairs relations of class difference, still lords and ladies dance and sing above, unknowing or uncaring that the laborers who minister to their luxuries starve or are turned into wild beasts below. Having visited a coal mine at Newcastle and observed grimy steel workers at Sheffield, Fuller felt relieved to reach London after the season, thereby sparing herself the most blatant contrast between the pomp and parade of wealth and luxury and the misery, squalid, agonizing, ruffianly, which stares one in the face in every street of London. She pitted... Uh, I just want to point out, this reminds me a lot of George Orwell's yes. uh, journey. Uh, check out the, uh, uh, if you're a patron, you'll have access to the special series we're doing on George Orwell, Orweller. Um, and, uh, but this reminds me of his sort of um, coming up for air slash, uh, or not coming up for air, uh, east, uh, not eastbound in town, um, <laughs> down and out in Paris and London and uh, road to Wigan Pier sort of thing. She pitied the poor but claimed to pity even more the English noble faced with social problems requiring a speedy solution. Repeatedly she intimated that only immediate reform in England could avert revolutionary violence. In London, Fuller also discovered encouraging signs of progress, the founding of the People's Journal, an organ of enlightened social and political opinion, 
Drive Southwood Smith's construction of habitable lodging for working-class people, the model prison at Pentonville, which still fell short of her high expectations, a combined public bath and public laundry for the indigent, and a school for poor Italian boys, run by Joseph Mazzini and other Italian exiles. As important to her as the organs and institutions of reform were the great-souled individuals whom she encountered. Fuller traveled to Hampstead to pay homage to Joanna Bailey, whom she classed with the French feminist Madame Roland as women of a Spartan, Roman strength, and singleness of mind. She likewise met Mary and William Howitt, editors of the People's Journal, as well as Thomas Cooper, the poet who had spent two years in prison for advocating universal male suffrage. Matsina, however, was by far the most beauteous person with whom Fuller became acquainted in London. He personified the cause of human freedom, and in his heroism, courage, and wisdom, Fuller perceived an almost holy devotion to the cause of republicanism. Expelled from Italy in 1831, Mazzini had learned French and English to build support for young Italy and his dream of a unified nation. His example aroused Fuller's interest in the struggle unfolding in Italy, he seemed the harbinger of a better era in Europe at large. Significantly, Mazzini appealed to a global vision of human rights and freedoms, to a political consciousness that transcended mere national advantages. Fuller had already been planning to visit Italy to observe the impending social drama, Matsina fired her passion for the cause. Fuller's unpleasant encounters with Thomas Carlyle also few... Uh, yeah, so Mazzini is a very important figure, um, but I like this part here where she sort of outgrows Emerson by realizing one of, by sort of noticing one of his influences in uh, Thomas, the conservative Thomas Carlyle. Fuller's unpleasant encounters with Thomas Carlyle also fueled her sense of social justice, and because Emerson had so extolled the great man, her disillusionment was probably inevitable. In her Tribune profile she wrote appreciatively of Carlyle's intellectual candor, he has torn off the veils from hideous facts, he has burnt away foolish illusions, but she found him personally insufferable, a man incapable of conversation because unwilling to listen to anyone but himself. In Carlyle she confronted an arrogant and overbearing form that skepticism about collective social action that had troubled her in Emerson. Indeed, on her third exposure to Carlyle's harangue, Fuller took umbrage at his attack on democracy, progress, and reform as rosewater imbecilities a dismissal the more repugnant to her because it trivialized the gallant work of Matsina, who was among Fuller's guests and whose mild protest Carlyle quashed. Because Emerson had identified so closely with Carlyle, editing his work for U.S. publication and virtually becoming, as Robert D. Richardson remarks, his American agent, Fuller must have recognized in Carlyle's torrential ridicule of social and political action the root of Emerson's mistrust of collectivism. Carlyle's boorish treatment of Matsina, with whom he claimed friendship, epitomized his failure to comprehend the significance and urgency of the revolutionary movement then threatening to reorder Europe. Although publications such as the People's Journal and people like the Howitz sustained Fuller's faith that social injustices might be alleviated by progressive efforts, contact with arch-conservatives like Carlyle and recurrent scenes of abject poverty in England awakened a belief that charitable deeds and lofty phrases were insufficient to transform a traditionary, class-bound society. In France, she discovered a similar, shocking disparity between the affluent beneficiaries of Louis-Philippe's bourgeois monarchy and Les Miserables. Gratified by the discovery that the French had, in the creation of the state-run creche, anticipated the need for daycare that would allow mothers to enter the workforce, 
Fuller found several other institutions of social reform in Paris a night school for workers run by the Christian Brothers, a place called Les Diaconesses where women could find shelter, daycare, and medical attention for sick children, and the school for idiots, where she wept sweet and bitter tears at the tender care bestowed on the tragically impaired little ones. But the winter of 1846-47 had inflicted great suffering on the poorer classes in France, primarily through food shortages, and the government had suppressed radical publications that sought to expose social ills. Underestimating its imminence, Fuller predicted a future uprising, while Louis-Philippe lives, the gases, compressed by his strong grasp, may not burst up to light, but the need of some radical measures of reform is not less strongly felt in France than elsewhere, and the time will come before long when such will be imperatively demanded. In fact, the revolutionary flame would ignite Paris less than a year after her departure. What Fuller saw in France convinced her that the utopian socialism articulated by Charles Fourier had taken root, and she lamented the resistance of Americans to a frank discussion of systematic injustices in the United States, the more I see of the terrible ills which infest the body politic of Europe, the more indignation I feel at the selfishness or stupidity of those in my own country who oppose an examination of these subjects such as is animated by the hope of prevention. She became convinced of the need for radical measures of reform if not outright revolution by her contact in Paris with several powerful personalities who advocated socialist principles, the priest and activist Felicit Robert de Lamennais, the novelist George Sand, and the Polish revolutionary and poet Adam Mikiewicz. Kennedy continued. So yeah, that's before she gets to Italy. <clears throat> before she gets to Italy, she's meeting all these people. George Sand, the uh, the famous author, uh, who uh, Proust was a big fan of. Um, it was an influence on her there. Uh, and <clears throat> we'll close it out with a little bit more from A Strange Nation, uh, where. We've, where uh, Fuller goes full socialist. <laughs> In late November, about the time she became pregnant, she composed a dispatch, published on New Year's Day, 1848, filled with reflections on the incendiary situation in Europe and the aggravating indifference of her fellow Americans. Concealing her own Italianization, she commended foreign travel as in reaffirmation of national identity the American in Europe, if a thinking mind, can only become more American and then proceeded to place American travelers in three categories, two of which, the servile American and the conceited American, indicated her scorn, manifested elsewhere in the Tribune dispatches, for the generality of her compatriots abroad. For readers at home she summarized the oppressive conditions in England, France, Poland, Italy, Russia, and Austria, portraying a continent on the brink of upheaval, all things bode and declare a new outbreak of the fire, to destroy old palaces of crime. Against the image of a coming European revolution, she evoked the American national struggle that produced a democratic republic based on the inborn rights of men, but addressing the national symbol, she vehemently denounced America's recent lapses, yet, O oh eagle, how often dost thou near the ground, how show the vulture in these later days? Thou wert to be the advance guard of humanity, the herald of all progress, how often hast thou betrayed this high commission? She acknowledged that Americans enjoyed freedom of the press, an effective governmental system of checks and balances, and broad opportunity for talent, to rise. But reaching a pitch of patriotic anger, 
Fuller delivered her most sustained critique of the failures and hypocrisies of her own nation. Here she captures a disturbing strangeness. But dare I say that political ambition is not as darkly sullied as in other countries? Must I not confess in my country to a boundless lust of gain? Must I not confess to the weakest vanity, which bristles and blusters at each foolish taunt of the foreign press, and must I not admit that the men who make these undignified rejoinders seek and find popularity so? Must I not confess that there is as yet no antidote cordially adopted that will defend even that great, rich country against the evils that have grown out of the commercial system in the old world? Then there is this horrible cancer of slavery, and this wicked war, Damn. that has grown out of it. I find the cause of tyranny and wrong everywhere the same and low. My country the darkest offender, because with the least excuse, forsworn to the high calling with which she was called no champion of the rights of men, but a robber and a jailer, the scourge hid behind her banner, her eyes fixed, not on the stars, but on the possessions of other men. As she witnessed the desperate bid by republican forces in Europe to overthrow the aristocracy and to found new nations based on human rights and freedoms, Fuller decried not only the apathy of her countrymen to the crisis across the Atlantic but also their relentless, unacknowledged betrayal of the founding precepts of liberty and equality as well as their equally unconfessed surrender to greed and rapacity. Mindful of American resistance to criticism, she added, I do not know what I have written, but something of true love must be in these lines. <laughs> Fuller's patriotic love of country urges her to condemn its nationalistic sins. As Jeffrey Steele notes, Fuller meant to rejuvenate her country, and she saw voluntary association or socialist reform as the necessary means to correct homegrown injustices. But the brunt of her dispatch is a denunciation of outrages the extension of slavery, the taking of Mexican land and property committed in the name of American manifest destiny. Within weeks of the column's publication, revolutionary change engulfed Italy and much of Europe, the Milanese protested Austrian rule by boycotting heavily taxed tobacco, Sicilians demonstrated against King Ferdinand, the despised ruler of Naples, nervous Italian monarchs began to grant constitutions, the French deposed Louis-Philippe, Austria revolted against Prince Metternich, and Germany moved toward federation. Caught between supporters of a unified Italy and Austrian invaders, the Pope refused to declare war against another Catholic country, rejected republicanism, and became a target of opposition in Rome, finally fleeing the Vatican. During the tumultuous year of insurrections, Fuller wrote little as she anguished about her fate, she confided to Emerson in December that she wanted to go to sleep, and be born again. Without mentioning her pregnancy, she told Caroline Sturgis Tappan in January 1848 that she was entering upon a sphere of her destiny so difficult that she could see no way out, except through the gate of death. In March, with the onset of the heavy rain, the arrival of Mikeyowas in Rome provided some relief from the pressure of secrecy, Fuller confided her predicament to him and considered asking him to be the child's godfather. He told Fuller about dramatic events in Paris and offered perspectives that she would incorporate into her dispatch of March 29, recapitulating for Tribune readers key events in Italy and then commenting on the fall of Louis Philippe's government in Paris. She exhorted Americans to grasp the meaning of the social clash in France, you may learn the real meaning of the words fraternity, equality, you may, despite the apes of the past, who strive to tutor you, learn the needs of a true democracy. You may in time learn to reverence, learn to guard, the true aristocracy of a nation, the only really noble the laboring classes. 
In this phase of her radicalization, Fuller, influenced by Michiovis, increasingly came to see the national revolutions of Europe in terms of a class struggle between common workers and an aristocracy propped up by the bourgeoisie. If the United States hoped to achieve a true democracy, she now believed, it must honor the laboring classes as indispensable to the idea of an American nation. Her sense of alienation impelled her remark in the dispatch of April 19, My country is at present spoiled by prosperity, stupid with the lust of gain, soiled by crime in its willing perpetuation of slavery, shamed by an unjust war, noble sentiment much forgotten even by individuals, the aims of politicians selfish or petty, the literature frivolous and venal. She professed that she had no desire to come home and now saw her role as becoming the historian of the revolution in Italy. She actually would write a history of the revolution in Italy that would be lost when her boat sank uh, 50 to 100 yards off of the coast of Fire Island. Um, putting dark irony to the let them be sea captains uh, comment in a Woman in the 19th Century because apparently, uh, if memory serves, the original pilot of that boat uh, got sick and died in like Spain. Uh, and so they had to have a replacement. Um, and yeah, it hit some rocks and uh, she perished. Um, uh, she also, at the end of Women in the 19th Century, she quotes, I think, Shakespeare, and says, though many have suffered shipwrecks, still beat noble hearts, which is eerie. Yeah, yeah. So many shipwreck motifs. And she had a dream about drowning, uh, yes. too. Yeah, a lot of presentiments there. Um, I, think, uh, I think we covered... Uh, one of the most interesting lives we've covered so far. Uh, if, so do, interesting. Anything else you guys want to add about uh, Margaret Fuller? I'll, a- I'll just add quickly. Uh, Buckminster Fuller, uh, the technologist slash architect. Um, I was. I'm not terribly familiar with his output, but uh, is the great grand nephew of Margaret Fuller. Um, there's a nice little moment that Megan Marshall covers in her biography after the. Um, the the ship sank where Emerson sent Thoreau out to attempt to find the manuscript right and any other papers for her because Horace Greeley had decided that we need to make like a monument to her as quick as possible before she vanishes from the national consciousness smart yeah uh, and there's this this lovely moment where Thoreau doesn't find anything essentially but finds a button from uh, <coughs> Gianni Gasoli's yeah jacket yeah so it says Precious letters from Mazzini and uh, Menkowitz. What it, what's that? Misk- Miskovich. Miskovich survived, along with uh, Margaret's correspondence with Giovanni and a slim journal she kept in Rome during the early months of 1849, ending just as the siege began. Nothing more. Nothing until Thoreau stumbled across Giovanni's guardsman coat. He ripped off one button and pocketed mm. it for his return to Concord. It so stupidly mocked his quest after vanished lives. Quote, held up, he would write of the button in his diary. Quote, it intercepts the light and casts a shadow, an actual button so-called, and yet all the life it is connected with is less substantial to me than my faintest dreams. Man. Yeah. uh, So, uh, Margaret Fuller, the goat. Best, uh, I mean, we have a lot of goats. Yeah, yeah. She is goat, though. Um, I but have one little anecdote, Matt. Mm-hmm. The, um, also from the Marshall biography that Alex was just quoting from. Um, 
after she died, although her body was lost, they put a little memorial stone up for her in Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is also where I think Henry James and William James are buried and a bunch of other literary figures. It's a really cool cemetery if um, people have a chance to check it out. Anyway, they put this memorial stone up, like, I think it was up a hill or something, because it's a huge cemetery. And within a few years, it was it had become the most visited place in the cemetery, that a path was actually trodden up wow. towards it. And that path became the first paved road in the cemetery. So, kind of cool that she, you know, attracted a devoted following even yeah. after death she needs to be much more prominent in our culture so much more yeah. i was just saying to alex it's extraordinary to me that she is not mentioned in the same breath as emerson and throw consistently oh that absolutely we don't i was gonna say like she should be mentioned anything anytime you bring up like wollstonecraft and stuff like yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah but definitely more than the other tr- that the the real transcendentalists yeah. like i i don't know i i downloaded uh some of emerson's essays and i mean he's is an interesting and engaging writer but he didn't do anything like this. It's like, the cultivation of that thought. Like it's, it's bringing that transcendentalist like energy towards some sort of material purpose. Right. It's not pointless. Yes. And, and that's yeah. the thing I like about her conversations. It's like, I forget how she formulated it, but um, it, she tries to bring women to the, 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 to think about like, what do I want to do and how do I want to do it mm-hmm. or what needs to be done? Mm-hmm. And not just like, let's like, let's, think about ideas and let's talk about the like, Greeks and stuff like that. Like, uh, yeah, it's excellent. So, um, in the Vivian Gornick review of the, uh, biography, Matson. Yeah. The Matson. um, she was saying that basically what happens when Fuller goes to Europe is she moves from the transcendentalist conception of self-improvement to this concept of reform. And I think that's very much like what you were saying, Alex, that she, she kind of takes what Emerson implants and then like applies it to the world. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's very inspiring. There's something to circle it to the, the book that's touching about what you said about the, her grave being the first paved road mm. or the, the path to her grave being the first paved road because she refers to the great women in history and herself as fellow pilgrims on the well-made road. Mm. Mm. Well, Alex and Grace. On that note, yeah, uh, I think we got to get out of here. That was so much fun. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is a good episode. I mean, they're all good, but this is a very good episode. Feel good about this one. Uh, Margaret Fuller, the the woman who transcended the transcendentalist into socialism. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, uh, that's the higher You got transcend individualist transcendentalism, and then you got socialism. Socialism, yeah, the three so, great isms. It's better than that. Okay, if she did it. America can definitely do she it. She did it in forty years, less than forty years. Yeah, yeah she she had a she had a lot of life in her short life. Um, and yeah, it came, uh, there's one part, I forget this quote, but she's like, I've met everyone in America and no one impresses me. <laughs> um, so she was, she was just a boss. Um, uh, literary hangover. We're at 191 patrons. Um, zooming up there. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna knock out the dials readership pretty soon. <laughs> literally, I, I I think about this in this terms of that. I mean, we yeah. we already get more listeners than probably. Oh, yeah. the, well, it's hard to say because the thing about newsprint at this time is it was shared a whole mm. lot. So like 30 people might have read one. Um, 
issue of it. But that said, um, the I bet the average literary hangover episode is doing better than the average dial um, publication <laughs> at this point. Matt, I think we should have a patron spinoff called Conversations in yeah. honor of Margaret Fuller. I think that, w- that wouldn't be a bad idea. Maybe women only. I mean, I'll, I'll support that. I can't be a part of it, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so uh, check that out. Um, uh, coming up soon is uh, probably next that uh, we're going to do uh, for the Orweller series, just for patrons. Uh, we're going to do Such Such with the Joys. Talk about George Orwell at St. Cyprian's uh, Preparatory Academy, or, or Crossgates, as he calls it. Um, and, uh, and then I'm not sure what we're going to do. If we'll have some other things we're going to, Chris and I are going to do, uh, Rutger Bregman's, uh, Utopia for Realists and mm. probably get into the weeds about UBI, uh, a little bit. Um, and we might get into some, some Phantom or Cooper. I'm not sure. We're, uh, a throwback. We're yeah. closing in on the one year mark for you, right? That's true. Um, actually, I don't know if we'll have another episode up before we reach a year. So, this and the next one are sort of the one-year anniversary episodes. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's been great, actually. Um, I'm very proud of the work we've done uh, so far. Um, I thank you both for the work you've put into this. Um, so thanks again, Alex and Grace. I'll put their uh, Twitter handles in the show notes this time. Yeah. The one thing everyone should know is that it's easy for us and we don't have any notes in front of us. Yeah. It just comes right off the dome. Yeah. And you shouldn't try unless you can do that extemporaneously. Yeah. As good as we can. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely no research went into this episode at all. No, We picked the topic right before we start recording. I didn't, I didn't read, um, Two massive biographies. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I didn't tramp the files of the Lake District listening to an audiobook about Margaret Fuller for literally twenty-five hours. Yeah, pleasant though. Yeah, very nice. Uh, so, uh, without with that said, uh, thank you very much, listeners. We will see you again next time. <laughs>